Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. The Old Testament reading is from Hosea chapter 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of beth Aven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Aben, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up from their altars, on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will disciple them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors, therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed, as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. The New Testament reading is from the book of John, chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
By this my Father is glorified, that ye bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. In one of Charles Schultz's Peanuts cartoons, Linus is chopping a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. He notices his hands and exclaims, and these hands of mine are fascinating. I like my hands. I think I have nice hands. My hands seem to have a lot of character. Lucy comes on the scene as Linus continues. These are hands which may someday do marvelous works. They may build mighty bridges, or heal the sick, or hit home runs, or write soul-stirring novels. Linus continues and sort of crescendos, and he says, these hands, which may someday change the course of destiny. See, looks at him matter-of-factly, looks at his hands, and she says this, but they got jelly on them. But they simply have jelly on them. Now, that may be a light start to a very heavy passage, and we'll get to the R-rated or the rated R section of this text in time. But I hope the point is clear and I'll through the humor, especially in light of hearing this text read. We are more often found to be like Linus, comforted by our own success, thrilled by our own ambitions, motivated by visions of greatness, and enchanted by the idea that others may think well of us. And the Holy Spirit through Isaiah is coming along and he says, but there's a problem. You have a spoiled outlook on life. There's jelly all over it. So this is the big idea. What is the greatest threat to your soul? It's lose your all of God and his love and replace him with anything else. When you lose your all of God and his love for you, and you replace him with anything else, this is the kind of worldview. It's one that competes for our heart's desires, our, our deepest loyalties. And the Bible has a comprehensive, uses comprehensive terms to explain this. The, the, the fear of man is basically losing your all with God and idolatry. So the fear of man is losing your all with man, but to be controlled by a concern of what other people may think of you. That's the fear of man. And idolatry, which is really the source of this fear, it's really the source behind all our sins. Dana Ortland, in his book Deeper, gives us a helpful definition of idolatry. He says, idolatry is the folly of asking a gift to be a giver. Idolatry is asking, it's the folly of asking a gift to be a giver. Well, because we are so thick-headed and because we live in the fog of our own follies, God has strong words to snap us out of our stupor. It's a straightforward diagnosis 
an even stronger remedy. It takes a diagnosis and a strong remedy to cut through our enchantment with the world. And Hosea does this in three ways. Simply, he describes a problem. He shows consequences. And he gives us the remedy. Let's pray. Father, we need your presence now. Lord, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we believe that it takes his power through the preaching of your word to change hearts, to shatter idols, to mend broken wounds, to heal hearts. So with all the various personalities, all the various stories in here this morning, Lord, I pray that your spirit rain down upon each and every one of them in your peculiar, powerful way through the preaching of your word and through the taking of the sacraments. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So back in chapter 9, it's been a few weeks since we have been in Hosea. Back in chapter 9, God hearkens Israel's attention back to the beginning of their history. It's a sort of divine nostalgia with the intention of reminding them of of who they are And whose they are. Look at chapter 9, verse 10. God says, this is how he found Israel. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. So God says he found them in an unlikely place. In the wilderness, which is a place of destitution. They were lovely to his sight. It's a picture of a man walking through the wilderness, not expecting to find anything fruitful, and he finds fruit. It brings joy to his heart. That's the picture. It brings joy to this traveler's heart. And then he joyfully tended for the flourishing of this fruit until fruit appeared. He excitedly, he rejoices over the tree's first bounty. Why? Because the fruit was to point to the gardener. And how precious and faithful and how persistent and loving this gardener was intending to. This seemingly unexpected fruit in a destitute place. So where chapter 9 left off, chapter 10, it, it expounds. God now finds them flourishing still. But there's something different about this plant. So notice in, in verse 1. Where God says in chapter 10, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. Israel is a luxurious vine. This word luxurious, it's a good word, but it actually gives a picture of emptying out. It's it's, it's the picture of a vine that is pouring itself and producing fruit upon fruit upon fruit upon fruit, but it's connected to a bad source. So the word actually is used as emptying. It's exhausting itself. That's the first point. Notice in verse 1 the poor nourishment of this plant, the poor nourishment. So back in seminary, I worked in the admissions office, and one of my tasks was not just to recruit over the phone, make cold calls to people to say, hey, do you want to come to seminary? But I would also go and travel to recruit, and I would go to like RUF, um, that's, that's the Presbyterian um, version of a campus ministry, Reform University Fellowship. I would go there and wait outside, set up a table and have everything. And one day I went to Auburn University. And I set up my, my table, waited for the people to come out. They come out. Students are flocking. Most passed by me. Few stopped to talk to me, which is common. 
So one individual came by and he wanted to know about seminary. So I told him, told him about our counseling program and our pastoral program. And I told him about the various scholarships that he could get and earn. So I asked him, okay, so why do you want to go to seminary? Why do you want to be a pastor? And this is what he told me. It's, 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 it's laughable, but it's, it's heartbreaking. He says, because I want to write books and speak at conferences. And he wasn't joking. I want to write books and speak at conferences. That's a poor motivation for ministry. It's poor. It's selfward. It's an ambition rooted in a vision of what he thought was the good life. He was sputtering out even before he started. And that's the picture here of this vine. It's the vine flourishing and exhausting itself. It's, it's running out of steam. But there's also a sense which this is a picture of anxiety. Constantly aiming for more, 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 ever satisfied. And, as, and Hosea is diagnosing a problem and he says, your root system is faulty. You're connected to a poor source. You see, Israel was created to be rooted and ruled and energized and even mesmerized by the love of Yahweh, the lordship of Yahweh, and the purposes of Yahweh. And these are really three things that make up the worldview of your heart. What you love, you submit to. What you submit to, you ultimately will find your purpose. You will see your purpose. Now, we may not be as extreme as the young man, as the young man I just mentioned, who wanted to write books and speak at conferences. At least we think we're not. But ask yourself these questions. What do I spend disposable income on? What in other people do I tend to envy? What do I find myself praying for that is nowhere promised in the Bible? Are you exhausted? Are you an exhausted vine rooted in this soil of anxious pursuits of success? Hosea says, this is the first diagnosis of an idolatrous heart. Secondly, notice the misdirected affection, still in verse 1. Verse 1b says, the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Something's terribly wrong. The blessings given by Yahweh are misapplied. There seems to be this bad trade-off, as mentioned before, asking the gift to be a giver, instead of worshiping the giver of the gift. Instead of thankfulness for the gifts, they begin worshiping the gifts. They instead use their resources, these gifts, to, to build more things that are just offensive to God. There's a whole systemic issue here. This is not just a Sunday or, in their context, a Saturday thing. This is an everyday societal thing. There's something terribly wrong. But he examines the situation even more. Go back to verse 1. Now, there's a bit of a translation difference that I'm about to bring up, but I'm not going to get into the weeds of it. Just know that this verse can be translated this way. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. It's another way to, to, to read, it, read that. It's a small difference. It's, it may be minor, but the point is still the same. This is a self-centered enterprise. 
Or to put it another way, his heart, Israel's heart, is firmly set on their own agenda, their own life goals and plans. Firmly set. Israel's in every that supplementing and securing themselves. So what do they do to maintain it? Because that's, that's what they're doing. They're maintaining it. They build more idols. We won't go to this text here, but if you read 2 Kings chapter 17, read the whole thing. It's fascinating. It's actually the, it's actually the, the context of history of what's going on here. You see, every nation that they're around, they build altars to their God to secure and to maintain and to please the customs and the whims of society. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's actually a funny scene to read. Here's one God, so they build an altar to this God. Here's another God, they build an altar to this God and this God. And there's like five gods they build to. And in other parts of Scripture, it says that Israel built God to the hosts of heavens. It was a never-ending pursuit of this security. Now, this adjective more, it's jam-packed, like I said, with anxiety, full of fears and uncertainties. Why? Because our idols, idols, they nurture insatiable itches. The more we scratch, the more the itch spreads, and pursuing the idol causes the idol to keep moving just further and further. So we yearn for more and more, and we place our hopes in more things than our hearts can actually achieve and attain. We build more, and we secure more things. Like a conveyor belt in a factory, we pump out idols ad nauseum to a sickening, disgusting degree. I mean, have you ever taken stock of your heart and seen how you may lust after something that's never been promised to you? It's not just that you want it. You almost do anything to get it. And if you don't get it, you find your heart is twisted and turned in ways it shouldn't be. Why is that? Why is that? Why? Well, God points it out. He says in verse 2 that their heart's orientation is off. He says that their heart is false. Notice that. He says their heart's false. Their heart's orientation is off. Now, before we dive into what the word false means, what is the heart? The heart is really the navigation system of the, the soul. It's who you are and what you are when you're by yourself. What your thoughts run to when you're by yourself. When somebody, you know, cuts in front of you on the highway and you get mad, that's you. It's the entire person, the thoughts, the emotions, and the will. And Hosea is saying, it's off. It's false. Now, the word here is the picture of something that's slippery or, or, or smooth. And Hosea is making a polarizing theme here in the Bible that's found often in wisdom literature, so like the Psalms and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And it's this. There are wise people and there are foolish people. There's no in between. Wise, foolish. You're either one or the other. The wise person's heart is oriented Godward, whereas the fool's heart has no conviction greater than the sum of his ambitious desires. Anything that will make him happy and keep him happy, he'll pursue. There's nothing in his character to slow him down from heading directly into ruin. Nothing in his character. Like a slip and slide. 
If he wants it, he'll have it. He'll pursue it. He'll never say no. But he's also a, a, a divided man. The word could also give a picture of something that's divided, divided heart. He'll say one thing, but he'll mean something else, intentionally, purposely. Anything to protect his happiness, he'll lie, he'll deceive. He'll worship God on Sunday, but be addicted to a God on Monday with little to no repentance. The Psalms give us a picture of this word. Psalm 52, 55, it says, His speech was smooth as butter. There's that word, smooth. Yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil. Yet they were drawn swords. So an example, be, being from the South, and if many of you may, some of you may be from the South, you may know this, but um, the South is known for its hospitality. Um, but if you live there long enough, you'll, you'll find a difference between kindness and kind rudeness. <laughs> you'll see the difference. With a warm smile and kind tone, you will be blessed with a, oh, bless your heart. Now, this can be a true blessing, or it's a way to politely insult you. And I've been on both ends of that. That's the picture here. False. Divided. Twisted. Hosea is saying to Israel something like this. No conviction. Double-minded. Says one thing, does another. But he's making a much larger claim. He's not just talking about individual choices, though that's assumed. He's speaking against their whole entire system here. It's their entire worldview he's speaking to. Notice again, back to verse 1, he's improving what? His altars. And the more he says, the more he sees that this idol is actually giving me what I want, the more he improves his culture or his country. The more he sees his country improves, like, oh, it's, it must be working. It must be working. It's an entire system here he's dealing with. So, Hosea is not pointing the finger to Wall Street and Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. The axe here falls in the church. You see, God's people in all their flourishing were meant, were meant to be lights to the world, pointing to the goodness and the sovereignty of God and the true flourishing that he brings. Their allegiance to God was reflected in generosity to the stranger and the poor and the orphan. And they are to be righteous in all actions. God was to sit enthroned on their praises. And the temple was to be the tangible evidence that God was in their midst. But success came in and choked it out. Choked out the goodness and the purity of God's word. And their eyes were diverted away from the honor of God and their hearts turned towards idols. So, big idea. What is the greatest threat to your soul? It's when you lose your all with God and his love and replace him with anything else. So now Hosea gives us the consequences. And we see this in really verses 3 through 8, but we'll, we'll take him in whole. And 3 through 8 can be summarized this way. There is lawlessness, living contradictions, lack of ability, lack of ability to cope with loss, and divine judgment is coming. He says that Hosea... Israel is, idolatry has made them utterly lawless. Look at verse 3. It says, for now they say, we have no king. We do not fear the Lord and the king. What could he do for us? 
Now, this could mean literally that they actually had no king, but that's not true. Again, read, read your further back in the Old Testament. Hoshea was king at that point. So they had a king. So that doesn't make sense. They could be denying allegiance to the reigning king. That could be the case, too. Or the king here is referring to God. They're denying his lordship over their lives, so they say we do not fear the Lord. The, the king there could be referring to the Lord. In other words, God's a bit too intrusive in their daily affairs and life goals. He's asking a little too much. And they'd rather live life without him. Now, the first option, again, it's off the table. It's probably a combination of both. And usually those two go hand in hand. You, you deny the authority that God gives to certain institutions. You often would deny the lordship, his lordship also. God says, serve the poor. We say no. Tend to the widow. No. Seek justice and love and mercy. My way. Befriend the stranger in your midst, but they may be too dangerous. Submit to one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. You know, I'd rather not. One's a bit too introverted. One's a bit too extroverted. I don't mean to be coy. That I just wanted to bring out the, the two go hand in hand. So they wanted to do without God. So they became a law unto themselves. Thus, they became living contradictions. Notice verse 4. They utter mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenants. So judgment spring up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Again, they're, they're making promises that they have no intention of keeping. Or that they can. So here, promise, there, promise, anything and everything to, 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 to get a deal, to get a bargain, to climb that ladder of success. They lie, they're being deceptive. Faulty business deals and skimming money off the top, cheating on taxes, anything and everything to stay ahead, to stay ahead and to secure the future. And so this deception leads to justice springing up like poisonous weeds. Now, that's actually a funny way to say that. You would think justice isn't poisonous. Justice is supposed to be good. We're to love justice and mercy. Another way to look at how Hosea is using this word, place in there lawsuits. Lawsuits. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If there are faulty deals going on and there are empty oaths and false promises and lying and deception... What do you do? You sue. You sue. And the irony of all this is it's actually in direct contradiction to the statement they made before. They don't want a king, but they go to him whenever deal goes bad. Living contradictions. They can't live out their own claims. On the one hand, they don't want God as king and, or a king, but when their precious desires are threatened, they run to both king and demand justice. That makes zero sense. Makes zero sense when you deny God. So all this led to a, they've lost the ability to cope with loss. Again, look at verses 5 through 6. It says, The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Bethaven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. 
The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. It's, it's actually, a, a, it's, it's, it's meant to be a funny, sarcastic scene. Hosea's pointed to something that looks utterly ridiculous. Notice they tremble and they mourn. What are they trembling and mourning over? This, this metal image of a baby cow. And they're losing their wits over it. It's absurd. This tremble conveys the idea of dread, or better put, they are in awe of and mesmerized by the promises that this idol has given them. And the very picture of people head over heels, shaking, obsessed, thrilled over this tiny little statue is absolute lunacy. And Hosea is pointing to it. It's like, look what you're doing. This is absurd. You're losing your mind over this idol that's promised you this iPad. This idol that's promised you this or that, it's done nothing for you. And you're losing yourself over it. They're trembling. They're losing themselves. They're, 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 they're losing their, their vision of the happy life. is crumbling before their eyes. And they've lost all ability to cope with this loss. And the irony of all this, if you read it, it's built by men. It's built by men, and then it's carried away. And guess, as it's being carried away, this idol can't defend itself, does nothing. It just gets taken to another place. And Hosea's mocking the whole thing. But the real blow, the real edge to this, is that it was happening in the church. He says, he doesn't call Israel the house of God, which would be the term Bethel, B-E-T-H-E-L. House of God. He calls it Beth Avon, which means house of sin. The place where God was to dwell is now a place where God doesn't dwell because it's ruled by this, this worldview, and he calls it sin. Beth Avon. So, what's the result when the idol is carried off? Again, he says it's utter shame. Now, this isn't the shame of inward embarrassment or guilt. It's the shame of realizing everything you've lived for fails you in the end. And it's the one that other people see and mock. Here's the application. It's it's an application for the church. The world knows and laughs at the church when she tries to be a Christian version of consumerism. they, They laugh at it. It's utterly failed. It's shameful. There are people in droves leaving the institutional church and deconstructing their Christianity because the church has compromised, in their view. It's chased after these idols, and doing so has been unjust. It's been deceptive. It's been oppressive and judgmental and greedy. She has turned a blind eye to, to abuse in all its forms and taken advantage of the poor by being more concerned with power than service, more concerned with power than sacrifice, You've heard it from the pulpit here a thousand times, and Hosea is bringing it home again. And here's a friend, a friend of mine. He, said, he had to say this about the church. He's no longer a Christian, but he had this to say about the church, and he was going to the pastor. He says, one of the reasons I'm glad I got out of ministry early is because the church can be an incredibly traumatizing place to be human. Incredibly traumatizing place to be human. Now, obviously, his situation is more difficult, more complicated than can be explained here in this passage. But 
For many, that experience is true for them. And some of you may come from churches like that. And maybe you're still licking your wounds, and maybe this church thing is a little offsetting. Maybe a bit untrusting a little bit because you're unsure. Well, I say to you what Isaiah is saying to you, it is utterly shameful. Antithetical to God. God's plan for his church is evil, it's disgusting, it's damaging. And God sees and God knows and your voice and your tears have been heard. Justice will be rendered. Now do you see why we get the hard passage of scripture? The hard judgment? It's because he's heard your voice and he's holy. He's heard the cries of those who have been hurt by, by, by God's people. So that's the other point. The judgment is coming. Now this is the R-rated portion of scripture. And if you've, if you've been paying attention to what's going on in this text amongst God's people and what's going on in the broader church culture here, in our culture, you may be a more, little more sympathetic to the claims of judgment than you were at the beginning. At least you can see justice must happen. At least you can see that. Something big needs to happen. Not little, big. But you probably still have questions. Why such harsh judgment? Why not a snap of the finger and rid the world of evil? Well, there's obviously two parts of this question, that two parts of this answer. One is the nature of God and the nature of sin in light of God and God's remedy. So why is the judgment so extreme? Now, this is a question we must tackle, not because it's just philosophically intriguing and because we want to win every argument that's, that's thrown our way, but because it's demanded of us in the text. We, we're, we need to feel the weight of this divine judgment. And the extreme response has against the evil of idolatry. You know, it's one thing to say, as we see in the text, that they must bear their guilt and he'll break down their altars. Or we can accept that Israel will be put to, Ephraim will be put to shame. Or we can accept that these high places will be knocked down. And I think we accept these verdicts the same way we would accept a life parole verdict against criminals who commit heinous crimes. But what about when God says, thorn and thistle shall grow on their altars, and they shall say, cover us, and to the hills fall on us. They'd rather die by avalanche than face the wrath of God. Or it says, a shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it should be done to you, O Bethel, because you're great evil. Can we accept that strong language? Is God being unjust and levying this kind of justice against Israel's sin? Would he be unjust for levying that justice on you and your idolatry? Well, the answer is yes. When you understand the nature of God in light, in the nature of sin in light of the nature of God. God is holy. That is H-O-L-Y. Holy. 
meaning he is completely other, morally pure. The high archangel in heaven is no closer to being like God than the worms that crawl in your garden. His moral purity is therefore in a completely, in a completely different category. Sin in all its forms is an offense against his law, and the sin of idolatry is the seat of every single one of those sins. Because it places earthly things above God. And as we saw before, we see there, there are moral consequences that ooze out of that. To replace God with anything else is likened in the book of Hosea unto a spouse replacing her husband with another man. So you still may be asking a question, but you may be saying that's you may, but you may be saying this, all fine and well. But how does God, how does my replacing God for prosperity or fame, even if I would concede that this is idolatry, why does that warrant such harsh indignation? Well, I think an example here would be helpful. Let's just say you came to me and you lied to me about speeding. You were speeding on the highway and you lied to me. The worst thing that happened is me or another pastor corrects you. Just correct you. Now imagine you told that same lie to a cop. What happens? Something a little harsher. A ticket. A fine. Now imagine you go to court and you tell that same lie to the judge. What happens? It's a much greater offense. And do you see that the, the, the what do I say here? That the offensiveness of the crime rises with the dignity of the one offended. Israel sinned not just against man. They, they, they sinned against the Lord, the creator, the Holy One. And idolatry is no small offense. It's horror. It's like spoiled milk in our nostrils. We smell spoiled milk or a rotten potato. I smell rotten potatoes. They smell like death. It is horrid. And you just want to get it out. You just want to get it out. Because you can't stand the smell. Sin is like that in the nauseous of God. So what is the big idea? It's the, our greatest threat to our soul is when we lose our all with God and his love and replace him with anything else. And this makes us idolaters, spiritual adulterers, deserving of God's Righteous anger. But again, remember, there are two parts to this question. Yes, it's the nature of God in light of our sin. But there's also a remedy. If we were to stop there, this would be a hopeless passage. I'd walk out here and never have to come back. It sounds like justice without mercy. Just raw, vindictive outbursts of, of, of rage, of anger. But it's not. Notice back in verse 10, you notice what he says? He says, when I please, I will discipline them. And nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Now, bound up in this word is a world of tenderness and hope. The word discipline. It's a parental term. Judges don't just, they don't discipline. They either condemn or quit. Fathers discipline their children. For God to say he's going to discipline Israel, is, is, is te he's telling Israel that he's doing so not as judge but as father. 
as it says in Deuteronomy 8.5, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Remember our big point. I want to add to that. It's not just that we are idolaters and spiritual adulterers and we deserve of God's righteous anger. But behind the righteous judge is a father's heart. And Hosea gives us more. He doesn't stop there. He's not really describing their heart. This is foundational. But there's more. Because Israel has a deep-rooted habitual sin problem. They are addicts. Idol addicts. So what does he do? He goes further. He gives us, he gives Israel and us the greatest news they could ever hear. He doesn't say that just that the righteous judge is a father. Sorry, he's, he goes further. He says the same father pardons and empowers. Look at verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is the, the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness on you. Now, this may sound like a works righteousness type passage. If I just stop doing bad and start doing good, then I'll receive blessings from the Lord. If that was what Hosea was saying, they will be treating God the same way they were treating their idols. That's not what's going on here. Good behavior is not warranting God's blessing. Because remember, they have a heart problem. When the Bible points to their heart, he's not just referring to their peripheral things that they do, but a deep-rooted heart issue that needs to be changed. So, but Hosea is saying, he is saying that the Lord will rain righteousness upon those who seek the Lord. He is saying that. And we're, we're in a bit of a conundrum. Because if Israel has a bad heart, and yet if they are to seek the Lord, that's gonna, that will gain blessing, then Hosea is either being deceptive, unclear, or, or he's actually giving us good news. The construction of this verse is important. Notice how righteousness brackets both the beginning and the end. Beginning and end. That's intentional. The beginning, of the, the beginning of the verse is meant to push us to the end. And we are meant to ask this question. How can I sow righteousness and receive, receive steadfast love? Which is another term for mercy, which um, implies pardon and forgiveness. And the text answers. This righteousness and steadfast love you need will be supplied by the Lord. He will come. Notice that. He will come and reign the righteousness, the, the righteousness that they are to sow. It's phenomenal. He's pushing him to the end there. And in light of that, we read the text backwards. And that's where John 15 is helpful. Jesus is the, using the imagery of the vine to teach us about the new reality of, this Holy, of the Holy Spirit, which creates something new in us. He says this, I am the vine, you are the branches, and you are nourished by your spirit, affecting union with me. Again, the changed heart, the union, that new source, the new outlook of life. And the first principle of this fruitfulness depends on your union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? What does it mean to abide in this vine? 
It means to live with the sense that the Son of God loves us and gave himself up for us. That he dwells within us by his Holy Spirit and that we know that our life is now his and no longer our own. And this needs to be the constant and frequent reminder for us. If our greatest threat is to lose our all with God and to supplant him with other things, if that is our heart's posture, then we need a new heart. And that's where the spirit comes in and he takes that heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh and he attaches your whole life to the life of Jesus Christ. And you look at your finances differently. You look at friends and family differently. You look at your job differently. You look at death itself differently. You look at yourself differently. The whole orientation, the whole worldview is changed. And our lives are nourished by this. By this reality that Jesus Christ gave himself up for me and now lives in me. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.